Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 121. I am Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, for the first time ever, we actually have a guest that has nothing to do with jiu-jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> David Zeitler, how are you doing, David? I, I'm doing great. It's, uh, I'm here in New York City, and it was rainy and cloudy for the past several days, and today it's nice and sunny, so I'm feeling pretty good. Same here. And, you know, normally being in Vancouver, we get weather jealousy of people a lot, but today it's actually quite nice outside. So what am I doing with that time? I'm locked inside recording a podcast, of course, because that is the smartest thing to do. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. You're a mutual acquaintance with Emily Kwok, friend of the show. I know that she speaks quite highly of you, and I've started working with you recently. But your area of expertise gets into a thread that I want to start pursuing more on this program. Now, we talk a lot about systems thinking on this show and models for learning, and in your case, this is actually a big part of your area of expertise, the field of adult development. I know that you do a lot of business and executive coaching, David, but maybe do just a quick introduction and tell everyone what your work is. Yeah. So my, you know, my day job is, as you said, I'm an executive coach. I focus mostly on the world of finance, mostly hedge funds inside that world. I also have some global legal firms that I work with and do some executive coaching there too. And I do recruiting interviews for them as well. And uh, I guess the way I got here is, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I'll start, you know, how did I get there? Right? Like I, I was obsessed with consciousness when I was in college. I really wanted to understand human understanding. I wanted to get knowledge about how we know what we know and why and what we focus on and I thought that neuroscience would be a good way to do that. So I actually started my career in neuroscience, but then I read a book by Michael Crichton. It's his autobiography. So if you've ever, ever seen Jurassic Park or any of the other movies that have been based on his books, he wrote an autobiography that is not widely known, but arguably more enjoyable than his books. And uh, that changed my mind really about uh, the, my path that I was on with neuroscience and medical school. And I pivoted to psychology. Nice, nice, nice. So explain something to me here, because this is something that as I've kind of moved up the ladder, I've had to really expand my mind on, and that is how this coaching process works. So when you say you're an executive coach, a business coach, you're not saying that you're going in there and teaching people how to do accounting, right? You're not teaching them like a hard technical skill. You're teaching them the art of self-improvement. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. I work on edges. You know, I work on leading edges and lagging edges. That's how I refer to them. So what exactly does that mean when we say leading edges and lagging edges? And how does that kind of apply to, you know, maybe give me some examples. Like if you're a person who's maybe coming to you for, for some guidance, what would be some examples of like leading edges and lagging edges? Yeah. So one of the most common is, I'll give you a couple. So there's decision-making, right? Like I'm, I need to make faster decisions or there's delegating. Like I need to delegate more because, you know, I'm, my time management skills are are not as good as they should be. So it it's often like I'm a superstar. I do so well, but, you know, with superstars, there's always one piece of what they're doing that's not really integrated well. And it's become a kind of anchor in their process, in their, in their workflow. So we'll go in there and, you know, we'll look at like, okay, well, what's going on? Oh, if I delegate, then my team is going to, you know, not like me. So what happens is you discover that these lagging edges of development, they're almost always connected 
to the person's identity somehow. And, and that brings me to their leading edge. So then we focus on, okay, what are you a superstar at? What's your superpower? And these are so often connected. And so the work is really about, number one, you map out their development. And then number two, you get some content like, okay, what are you doing day to day? And then number three, you just start experimenting. You, you really tinker with their behavior. And that's where it gets really interesting because people quite often have a big, you know, resistance to, you know, to change their behaviors because after all, what the behaviors that, you know, got them here, they don't want to change those. And that's, those are the very behaviors that sometimes need to be tinkered with. So when it comes to tinkering with people's behavior, I mean, a big part of this, of course, is getting their consent to do so, right? I mean, like you mentioned, a lot of people are very resistant to change, especially if it is change about how they view themselves within the world, right? I mean, if you're asking people to change fundamentally how they behave, they can wind up viewing that almost as an attack on identity or an attack on the ego, and they can get very defensive. And I wonder, is part of your job breaking down that defensiveness, or is it a requirement that people already have that realization before they come to you? Like, if someone comes to you, is it expected that they've already realized that, okay, I got to put my ego and my identity on the shelf and really focus on being humble and learning? Or is part of what you have to do to get these very stubborn people and actually kind of break down those layers so that they're more receptive to feedback? Yeah. So I'm going to try to avoid the slightly problematic term ego <laughs> because people use it in two main ways, right? They, they Sometimes they use it to mean just the functional part of the psyche. And sometimes they use it to mean like, oh, this person thinks, you know, very highly of themselves. Rather, let's look at the marshmallow experiment. So you're probably familiar with the famous marshmallow experiment. You put like a four-year-old into a room and there's a single marshmallow on a plate and you say, okay, I'm going to leave this room. And if you don't eat that marshmallow, when I come back, I will give you another marshmallow and you will have two. But if you eat that marshmallow, then I will not come back with the second marshmallow and you will only have the one marshmallow. So that's basically what I am doing. I don't have to try to break down someone's ego because when you map out someone's leading and lagging edges, you say, okay, well, here is kind of what you want. But here is what you have to give up in order to get what you want. And, you know, there's some very good methods that allow you to show this person from asking them just a few questions. Oh, I see. They can take it as an object of their awareness, maybe for the first time in their life that, oh, I'm, I'm pulling my, I'm being pulled in two different directions. I'm pulling myself in two different directions. So I don't really need to go in there and try and be a hero break down their ego barriers like you might on the mat, let's say. I just need to go in and say, well, you say you want this, but if you want that, you have to give up this other thing. For example, you know, in the case of someone who is, you know, they want to delegate more. And I'm like, well, if you want to delegate more, you have to give up this attachment to doing all of the work yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that I think is a really, really valuable part of jujitsu, which is that you mentioned it yourself. You can kind of beat the ego out of someone. You know, you can you can create a scenario where they're very receptive to receiving feedback, right? Because very few things are more immediate than the results of a sparring session. And this actually is one of the reasons why I think jujitsu is such a good vehicle for personal development, is because it might be the first time for a lot of people where they're really put into a, a situation where they can directly feel the consequences of their actions right away, right? If you go in there and you're sparring and you make a mistake, you're going to get stuck in an arm lock or you're going to get choked right away. And so your brain immediately knows, okay, well, if this is happening now, I have to figure out what the course correction is for my own behavior. It's a very objective, short feedback loop. Whereas out in the quote unquote real world, right? I mean, if I'm sitting at, at a job, especially if I'm in kind of like middle or upper management where people might be intimidated to tell me what's really on their mind, you know, there can be mistakes I'm making that I never receive feedback on because it's a much harder thing to do and it's much easier to dodge, right? I mean, if you're a, if you're a dick at the workplace, 
people aren't necessarily going to sit you down five minutes after you do something bad and say, here's why you shouldn't have done that. This is an unlikely situation. Most likely people are going to just start working around you, or maybe they'll go and they'll tell your boss or other people about the challenges to your behavior. And you could wind up never directly experiencing the consequences of what you're doing. And so much of personal development is having that feedback loop. And so I think that that's something that I find interesting about your work, because it sounds like a big part of what you're doing here is you're confronting people with, you know, you're taking what it is that they're telling you they want to achieve. And then you're basically holding up a mirror and confronting them with, okay, here are the things you're doing that are inhibiting you from achieving that goal. Is that a correct understanding? Absolutely. I mean, you're you're reminding me of the very first sparring session I ever had. So I've never trained in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I've trained in other martial arts. And the very first sparring session I had, I had a wonderful senior student who taught me a very good lesson in about two seconds. My thumbs <laughs> were sticking out and he just like, he stepped in and all he did was like smack one of my thumbs, which sprained it. And it was oh, sprained boy. for like, <laughs> for for weeks, it was sprained and you know, it affected my training, but what a gift he gave me, you know, he didn't have to do much. Yeah. The, the thing that we say a lot is that you can learn more from, or at least you should learn more from your losses, right? I mean, yes, you can learn from your wins, but a lot of the time, you know, if you go in and everything goes right and you win, it might feel good in the moment, but it's quite forgettable. But the mistakes you make are a far better learning opportunity for you. And I I think that, changing your mindset so that you look at losing as a positive because it's such a key part of the learning process. That's so huge to developing your confidence and being willing to put yourself out there because you start to downplay and degrade that fear of being embarrassed or that fear of looking bad. And I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why I think martial arts are are great is because you walk into a room and you get your ass kicked in front of 30 strangers, right? Or however many strangers. And if you do this in competition, hundreds, maybe thousands of people will see this. And that very, very quickly trains you to get comfortable looking bad in front of other people and to use that as a, as a driver and not as a, an inhibitor. I guess a question I have for you on the topic of this adult development thing. I mean, when we say adult development, what is that? Like, how is that different from child development, for example? And what is what is this field of adult development? Who are the main players in it? What are the big ideas behind it? Yeah, if you don't mind, before we get to adult development, which I will happily dork out on for, <laughs> you know, a long time, I just want to come back to that you mentioned feedback, right? And and how important it is. So when you're dealing with the physical world, whether that's on the mat or you're building a bridge or a building, driving a car, whatever it is, you get relatively immediate feedback, or at least it's clear, even if it's not immediate. But as soon as you enter the world of the subjective perceptions, you know, consciousness or relationships, or how am I doing at work, the feedback is unclear because you yourself may not trust the feedback, mm -hmm. right? There's all kinds of ways that we step in and we'll say, well, I'm not sure if I trust that source or I'm not sure of this or I'm not sure of that. It really does take a whole lot of, you know, individual sources giving you feedback that's similar for you to think, oh, well, you know, maybe this is me, maybe it's not the world. So that's why something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're much more likely to enter a flow state and achieve success because you've got the four ingredients. You've got, it's a big challenge and you have, you know, usually if you're advanced, you have a lot of skill. So there's the challenge and the skill components. Your goal is crystal clear, right? And like you, you want to win. And then the feedback is immediate. Mm -hmm. So those are the elements that you need for the flow state, which, you know, many researchers, including myself, think, yeah, this is this is a requirement. If you want to be like world class, you you do have to enter a flow state. So when it comes to work, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to worldviews, cultural differences, this lack of trusting feedback and the ways that we game ourselves to not accept it is one of the key reasons why many of us are not world-class in all of those other domains. Yeah, I love the point you brought up about not trusting the feedback because that is such a problem in the real world, right? In martial arts, you don't really have a choice. I mean, if you get defeated, 
whether you trust it or not, I mean, how can you not trust it if you got defeated, right? It's very clear why, well, it might not be clear why you lost, but it's clear uh, to some extent that, you know, you received real feedback. Whereas in the real world, it's very easy to dismiss the messenger because feedback is often quite separated from what actually happened. There's a lot of human brains in between those two things. And that can that can create situations where you might doubt the accuracy of the message. I mean, I had a situation once where I was mentoring a junior person who we felt really, you know, he was very prideful and it was impacting his performance and the, his ability to relate to his peers. And I sat down with him one time and I said, you know, buddy, you need to try to be more humble, right? It's very, and I explained to him all of the reasons why you should be more humble. And I love his response. His response was, no, I don't need to be more humble. I'm very proud of how humble I am. <laughs> Which I thought was amazing. And I, I love to tell that story. Like it's, it's very easy to just dismiss outright the feedback from the other person. And I think we all do this to some degree. I mean, I'm certainly guilty of it, right? And this is a, a form of defensiveness that we've all got. If someone comes to me and they say something really harsh and unpleasant about what I'm doing, my first reaction is to get my back up. And it's taken me decades to get to the point where I become aware of that natural reaction and I try to suppress it and just listen. It's, it's a very counterintuitive and unnatural thing to learn to do, which is probably why so few people do it. Absolutely. I mean, and and this is actually a pretty good segue to the world of developmental psychology. I mean, we can look at defensiveness and we can say, yeah, defensiveness, bad. But defense is also integrity. This is a line from Robert Keegan, who is one of my two main mentors, and I, I was his director of coaching for his firm Minds at Work for about seven years. And that line, uh, well, a lot of his lines will get me going, but that one is very good because it helps me to always remember to have compassion for myself and others when we are being defensive. Because what is it that's being defended? It's our identity. And our identity is attached to our worldview. And our worldview is how we bring our value into the world and how we value the values that we would like to share with others. So there's also something beautiful, if hidden, about defensiveness. And it's, it is problematic for all the reasons that we've been talking about. But that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to be an executive coach and why you know, also one of the reasons why I really like the method that I use because I don't have to like try and directly go 180 degrees against someone's defenses. I can just say, look, this is what you want and and this is what you have to give up. And so if you really want to grow to the next level, I, I may not always use that terminology. You know, I, I would say only about 20% of the clients I work with are interested in the developmental aspect of this. But of the ones who are, I'll say, look, you're trying to become a more mature, self-authoring adult. And in order to do that, you have to kind of give up your relationship to all of these relationships. You have to reorganize. And that's what development, you know, in, in a single word, I would say that development is really about organization, how we organize, you know, meaning in our own minds, whether we're children or adults. Interesting, interesting. Well, let me ask a question because you said self-authoring, and this is a term that I've heard a lot of top performers use. I've, I've heard you say it. I've heard Emily say it. I don't know exactly what the definition of that is. I mean, like, what is self-authoring and how does that differ from what, you know, the majority of people do on the regular? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So rather than give you like, I mean, I guess I'll start with the technical. So a self-authoring adult has a principled orientation. So rather than orienting to societal norms or to their relationships, they orient to internal principles. They have a seat of judgment, you know. Uh, so some famous psychologists, developmental psychologists in the past have said, look, you know, if, if, you, if you ask people moral dilemmas, like the famous moral dilemma of someone stealing medicine in order to save the life of their spouse. And, you know, the responses you get are like, yes, it's okay. No, it's not okay. And yes, it's okay. Okay. So that's two yeses. How do you distinguish between the two different yeses? And the way you do that is you look at why they say it's okay. 
So the first yes is because I need it. That's it. It begins and ends with their needs. And the second one, the, the, the second answer is the no. Oh, why, why is it not okay? Well, because it's wrong. Stealing is wrong. Okay, that's more of that like conforming to societal norms, which we need, right? You, you need to actually get to that stage of development where you are kind of looking to other people, other experts and, and listening to rules. And you, you have to let society make its way into your heart uh, during, you know, mostly the teen years, right? This is what all parents are trying to get their teenagers to do. But then that second yes that third answer is different from the first yes. It's not just because I need it. Why is it okay? And their responses are more along the lines of, well, it's it's true that stealing is wrong, but when your spouse is dying, you have to accept the consequences of your actions, even if that includes stealing. And so you do steal the drug because your values are at stake here. Not This isn't just about relationships. This is about the value of this drug being too expensive. So it's two responses, but it's spread out across three different levels. And you really have to kind of dig in to understand what's going on. So I hope that I hope that helps, you know, describe the differences a little. Those responses, by the way, are the last stage of childhood, that needs-oriented stage. That's the last stage of childhood. And then the conformity stage, which is also called the socialized mind, that's when that's the first stage of adulthood. Becoming an adult means, okay, society is going to trust you to obey society's rules. And now you can become a member of society. And then the second stage or the, the third response, the third yes, that's the second stage of adult development. So there's really like three main stages of childhood development and three main stages of adult development. So sorry if my example cut across the bridge between adulthood and childhood, but it was a good way to answer your original question there. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like at some point you have to establish some very basic norms and expectations before you can start operating on a, on a higher level. I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast. A common challenge in the martial arts world is how do you teach people? You know, you can, I can sit you down and I can just show you a hundred techniques and not really explain why you're doing this or what the details are. Just be like, here are a bunch of techniques, go off into a corner and just drill these a thousand times. I can do that. And that probably will work, but maybe suboptimally. The other option is I can give you a bunch of ideas, right? I can say, here are the concepts that tie all of this stuff together. And that's a big part about what we talk about on the show. And that helps too. But at the end of the day, if you're only thinking about things and not applying them, then it impacts your learning as well. So what we kind of advise is like a meet in the middle approach, right? Much like how if you've got a, you know, a child and you want to teach them to speak, you don't sit them down when they're one year, two years old and explain to them the rules of prose and grammatical structure. You give them words, right? And you make them repeat those over and over and over again until they can start to express some ideas. And then you can start introducing big concepts. And it sounds like a similar approach to what you're talking about here, right? Which is, yeah, of course you want to get everyone to be a self-authoring adult, but first you've got to teach them how to walk before they can run, right? It sounds to me like that's how you're explaining this. Yeah, I mean, it, exactly. Everybody wants to play jazz, but you need to learn classical techniques if you want to play jazz well. Got it. Yeah. Interestingly, there's a concept in the martial arts. You might be familiar with it because it comes from uh, classical martial arts called shuhari, which basically in Japanese, it means that there's three stages to the process of mastery. The first stage is you basically imitate. So at this point, you're just following instructions and trying to build up some familiarity. Then you start to break away from tradition and you start to question things and you start to try to kind of forge your own path. And then the final step is you start to innovate, like you take ownership of your own process. At that point, you can start to really express yourself more creatively, but it's very hard to just go to the last step. Like you have to have put the time in working out the basics and just at least getting familiar with the motions before you're ready for actually taking ownership of your own path. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you'll suck if you don't. I mean, exactly. the results will be pretty clear, right? Like, there has to be something that you're transcending if you want to be transcendent. Mm -hmm. Now, how do people 
reach that moment? Because you mentioned that a lot of people, they never really get very far in adult development. You know, they get far enough along as an adolescent to learn how to express their needs, right? And and maybe to take into account the expectations of other people, but the whole process of being self-authoring is something that I was certainly never taught. And I suspect that a lot of people never really grow past that adolescent mindset. They carry that with them for the rest of their lives. Is there an aha moment or some sort of transitionary period where people start to realize like, okay, maybe it's time for me to get to the next level? Because it sure sounds like this only happens to a handful of people. Yeah, I mean, I can give you some numbers by, you know, these are from different meta-analyses that have been done on populations of college-educated adults. And it turns out that, you know, 60% of college-educated adults are not fully at this second stage, this self-authoring stage. So only about 40% of college-educated adults are there. And, you know, the aha aha moment can be, there can be a lot of them. The one that I have used the most that is the most easy to illustrate this is when I am working with a client. Let's let's use the delegation example because it, it fits well here. So at some point during this tinkering phase where we are experimenting and, you know, I'm, let's say I'm having an executive, you know, after after the next meeting, I want you to instruct, you know, your assistant to to reach out to members of the team, reminding them you know, what they're responsible for before the next meeting, something like that, just in very general terms. And they're dealing with some feelings about that, right? They're thinking like, oh, my, my assistant is so overwhelmed, or I'm, I'm nervous that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be less like. The more I give people work to do that they might see as my work, you know, the less likely that I'm going to be able to be an effective leader. And so at some point, I will say something along the lines of, you know, you seem you seem pretty good at making sure other people are in a very good position to do their work. And they'll say yes. And I'm like, okay, do you put yourself on that list? And then I just wait. And usually the person will have a kind of aha moment. They'll realize that they spend so much of their time making sure that everyone else is, you know, perfectly set up to do their work perfectly and they are not turning that on themselves. And that can be an aha moment that gets them to say, okay, I get it. You know, I I need to be on this list as well, which means I need to actually clear my plate more, which means I need to rely on the people whose, by the way, job it is to assist them. Right. Let's not forget mm-hmm. that there is like an, an obvious role element here that they are also kind of ignoring because of their identity. And so that usually will start this process of differentiating from a more, you know, socialized uh, way of looking at the world to a more principled way of looking at the world. And a principled way thinks in systems also, by the way. There's like, there is a systems thinking component to this. And so sometimes, as a person is becoming more self-authoring, they may seem a little cold for like a, a brief period as they reject their relationship to their relationships. That's very similar to your example from the Japanese martial arts, where there's that period of of like that second phase where they like reject kind of what they have learned. But then usually very quickly, they they get to the self-authoring level and then they start to reintegrate their relationships in healthier ways. It sounds to me like being self-authoring, like if I really had to distill it down to what it means, it it sounds to me like a big part of that is A, knowing your principles and being clear to people about those principles and what you want and what you need. Is that a fair assessment? Actually, I, I think I would push back a little bit on that because, you know, you can know your principles, but your behavior doesn't match them. This happens all the time, right? It's it's not enough to know your principles as a concept. And this goes back to walking your talk, right? Like, So mm-hmm. development always starts as a set of ideas. And that's that leading edge, right? Like we can see, oh, if I do things in this manner, then I could become world-class. 
But then the lagging edge kicks in and that that defensiveness kicked in, which remember, defense is also integrity. It's the integrity of that of that worldview that they're identified with. That kicks in and then that's why it's much harder to then operate from the set of principles. So development, I've come up with this like, you know, three-step process. It's see it, feel it, and then do it. First, you see it, you can see your principles, then you feel them, but then you actually have to do them. And there's another really good example of this that I think everybody has experienced. So all of us have had the experience of having a difficult conversation. And then the next day you're like, oh man, what I should have said is this. Mm -hmm. And then if you notice that line starts to move, then you notice it later on that night. And then next time, maybe a couple months down the road, now you notice it immediately after the conversation. Then you start noticing it during the conversation, right? And now you have a choice to make. Now you're going from seeing it to feeling it. You're feeling the dilemma. If I say this right now, you know, it's all, it's all good to think about, to fantasize, oh, if I had said this, it would have been perfect. But when it's kind of in the moment, now you're like, oh, there's, there's a risk here. There's a real risk to like saying to this person, you know, I think you're wrong. That's bullshit or whatever. And then you can start predicting. So when you get to the point where the conversation is happening or right before it happens, you're like, I might be called to say something along these lines. And you have a thought. Now you can start tinkering with the doing. So that's that's basically the see it, feel it, do it process of development. And the more people can bring this process into their life. It doesn't matter what stage of development you're at. When you use that see it, feel it, do it kind of process and the lines is moving backwards and earlier and earlier basically in your mind, now you're basically being called to take action on behalf of your own evolution. And now you can feel guilty about not evolving. If you if you were if you were feeling guilty before that, it's a little bit unfair. But if you can already see it and already feel it and you're just not doing it, well, that means you're stuck. That means you've got some kind of anchor that now you really do need like to work with someone on lifting that anchor out of the water so your boat can continue. Yeah, that's, I, I like what you're saying about not beating yourself up too much because I think a lot of people, they, they do that and they don't really know where to start. And you know, if no matter when you start, it doesn't matter if you start at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, like you should just be proud of yourself for having started this journey and developing some degree of self-awareness. Um, for me, the big moment actually where I started thinking about this stuff was when I read Ray Dalio's book, Principles. Mm -hmm. And that kind of got me thinking, I mean, that, that book is like a monster, right? It's like a 200 item list of like raised principles. And I remember reading that and thinking, okay, this guy is excessive. <laughs> but I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to do this myself. And I came up with a comparatively sized list. And that started getting me to think about, okay, there's got to be some common threads because I can't just live my life by, you know, a 200 bullet point list. So I started trying to tie these ideas together. And that's kind of where I started to really get thinking about the idea of first principles, right? And the things that to me really matter that are like non-negotiable principles for living. And having gone through that process of thinking about this stuff, it took a long time and a lot of effort, and I'm still not done. And I don't know if I ever will be done, but it really clarified for me what the things are that really truly matter to me. And that has actually allowed me to deal with those difficult situations that you talked about, where you know you get put on the spot in a room with 10 people, and they're all going in one direction, but your gut is pulling you in another direction, right? And maybe you can't really phrase it, you don't really know exactly why, but I found that the process of understanding what I really believe in makes it easier to explain my feelings on something. And also that gives me more confidence to do that last step that you talked about, the do it step, because that is so hard, right? It's it's very hard to get up in front of a room of a bunch of people, especially if you're at a power disadvantage and say, I think you're all wrong and here's why, or, you know, to stand up in these situations. And I think that we don't do a good job of, of training our youth to do that, right? So much of what we teach people in is how to fit in, in like an employment type situation, but we don't really teach people how to stand up for the beliefs that you believe are integral. So I've started, as I put pen to paper, you know, like one of the things that I fundamentally believe is in the golden rule, right? The do unto others rule. I, I think that that's gotta be bedrock for almost any conversation I have 
to the point now where I can clarify and express that thought. And I'm I'm willing to negotiate on a lot of things, but I'm never willing to negotiate on my principles. So there may be moments where I'll flat out say to someone, look, I live my, my life by this code. And I think we can all agree that this should be a first principle. And that's not happening now. And I'm not negotiating on this. Like until we solve this problem, we can go no further in this discussion. So I find that the act of clarifying my principles, at least to me, it made me better at the do it part because I was more confident in why I believe these things. And I felt more comfortable explaining them to other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I kind of, I anticipated that you were going to talk about first principles. Now you and I yeah. have not, ne- you know, we're, we're here, we're recording. We haven't talked about this. We never talked about first principles, but for some reason, I kind of knew they were going to come up. So I, I well, you know that I'm a systems guy. I'm definitely going to throw first <laughs> principles into any conversation I can. So I want to use first principles and the golden rule to illustrate the overlooked importance of adult development theory. Mm-hmm. Most people, when they think about first principles or when they use them, and I'm not saying this is you, but most people, my my experience has been that they they're using as as a kind of synonym for fundamentals. But what they leave out of the definition is assumptions. It's actually fundamental assumptions. What are the things that we are assuming are the fundamental, we cannot factor this into anything else. And it turns out that our assumptions are the the kind of royal road for understanding someone's level of development. So let's take the golden rule. Let's let's look at how the golden rule is applied to, let's say, a kid who's seven or eight years old. They might hear you say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and think, yes, that's really good advice. I know that that person is going to mess with me, so I'm going to mess with them first. <laughs> right? So it's like, even these, you know, these aphorisms, these vignettes, we assume that they cut across all ages, but they do not. What is, you know, my first principles, you know, the way I use them are everyone has a different worldview. Those worldviews can be assessed. They each successive worldview is has more depth and more complexity and more capacity than the prior one. If you can help someone understand their next worldview, for example, they always prefer it. Their leading edge is like already kind of peeking, peeking into that. And they're like, yes, I like that. I feel great about that. I want more of that. So first principles are good to use, but we should always keep in mind that adults are not using first principles in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually something interestingly that we've talked about in the context of martial arts, which is how when you espouse principles, especially if you're like the senior ranking person, a lot of the time people will just follow your instructions without ever questioning the assumptions behind them or really asking the questions to truly understand them. Like the golden rule is a great example, right? Because in this, really what it's about is empathy and mutual respect and mutual benefit, right? If you understood it in the way it was intended, you would never go and attack someone who's going to attack you because what you're really saying is if you were in that other person's shoes, what would you want? And are your actions justifiable if the tables were turned, right? It's not It's not an excuse to like do preemptive attacks, but people often take these like nuggets of wisdom and they ingrain them without really questioning them or thinking about the assumptions underneath. And you've got to be careful as a, at least as a martial arts instructor. And I assume that this comes up for you as well, because you can drop a nugget of wisdom in someone's mind and they might think, oh, that's awesome. And just run with it <laughs> and, and never question it. And some, you know, sometimes you introduce a concept and maybe it's not intended to apply universally, but the person interprets that as like, this is a principle. It must always be followed. And you have to be careful because you can actually wind up building some bad habits in people. Because if they, if you give them some info and you're trying to tell them like, this is a general, you know, a general guideline and they interpret it as a principle, you can really set them up for failure because they're not thinking with that level of grayness that you need in order to really see what's a principle and what's not. Right. So let's talk about the word principle, right? Like- mm-hmm. The, even the word principle is different. And let's use the two, the first two levels of the three levels of adult development as an example. So the way you are using a principle is in this self-authoring way. You're not using principle like rule. 
right? But mm-hmm. but some you know so so the the sixty percent or so of college educated adults who are not yet fully self authoring, they are appropriately understandably using it in that way. They're like, okay, good. Now I know what to do. That's just a fact of life. If you are a self-authoring adult and you go around teaching, you're going to be disappointed about 60% of the time when you see someone taking what you are holding as a kind of, okay, this is one principle amongst many. And depending on the context, you might actually use a different principle. Whereas the person who is not yet fully self-authoring is going to be like, this is what I should do. And by the way, that's Mm -hmm. appropriate. That's appropriate, good, right, and true for them to be doing. They are on their own developmental path where they will get to the point of seeing, oh, okay, so, you know, rules are good and I should be following them. But you know what? There are situations where I have to like do something different. That person is probably ready for growth to the next stage. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying is that when someone is ready to kind of achieve the the next level here, when they're ready to go to the next stage of personal development, it feels like they start bumping up against a wall. Like that's kind of how you, it sounds like what you're describing. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, yeah. I mean, every stage is like that, right? Like at every stage, you start to bump up against the limitations of your current way of making sense of things, right? Where you you face some kind of dilemma. It goes back to that marshmallow experiment. Oh, I, if I want the second marshmallow, then I have to wait. But like, I am an impulsive four-year-old. I see the world through my impulses. I cannot look at my impulses in order to control them because I am my impulses. So, Jumping to this first stage of adult development, I am my relationships appropriately. I am the rules and regulations of, you know, my society. I want to have affiliations with this group with whom I am identified. It makes me feel good and it's important. But from time to time, I'm feeling like my voice is not being heard. I'm not voicing my voice. I don't know what my authentic voice is. So all of this training and finding your voice and assertiveness training and things like that, it's basically this, it's basically a recognition that there are these differences in adult maturity without any of the technologies that would help them actually get those folks to grow. It's like, let's give them some instructions and then they'll be able to do it on their own. But that's not how development works. Development always takes a village to, you know, paraphrase that book. <laughs> so this is actually something that I can definitely relate to, right? I, I've i never really been the type of guy to go and seek out guidance from other people. I always am kind of inclined to just try to do it myself. And in the martial arts community, at least in the jujitsu community, I've seen kind of an evolution of thinking. I mean, we're starting to, I think, realize now in jujitsu the importance of having a good coach. And that coach might not be, you know, as good a technical grappler as you, right? Like they might not be as good a competitor as you because coaching is a different skill set. And what we've seen over the last 10 or so years is that often the best coaches are not you know, retired former world champions. It's people who just kind of came out of nowhere, but they have a particular way of coaching that people find value to. And and it can be often be very different from how, what would be intuitive, right? I think the mistake that happens a lot in the martial arts is you'll get someone who maybe is, you know, I don't know, like a 10 time black belt world champion. And they'll, they'll just think they're awesome, right? How could you possibly be better than that? So, you know, they get out of their athletic prime. They're trying to figure out what to do next. They open their own gym and they have zero teaching or coaching experience. So they just wing it. But they, because they're a black belt and they, because, you know, their, their whole life has been building this reputation of being the 10 time world champion, they just kind of assume they know best and they don't necessarily go out of their way to learn how do you coach. They don't go in and bring in coaching experts. They just do whatever feels intuitive. And the end result is that a lot of martial arts instruction is really poor in terms of its quality because it's being taught by people who honestly don't know how to teach. And I, and I would wonder, like, how do you 
balance this relationship? Because I, I really feel like coaching is a completely different skill set and it's very hard to quantify what makes a good coach and what makes someone coachable. You know, we talk a lot about, oh, he's not coachable, but like, what does that mean? It's, it's clearly not just a matter of ego or humility because there are some people who have gigantic egos, but are by all accounts quite coachable. I'm just wondering like how, what makes a good coach and what makes a good coachable person? Wow. That's, that's such a big question. The first thing I want to say is the same thing is true of a college education. So unless your professor has a degree in education or in pedagogy, they were never trained to teach. So this problem is much, I mean, yes, it's, I, I, I see you, you gave me an excellent example from the world of jujitsu, but it's everywhere, right? It's like, mm-hmm. so jumping to, you know, coachability. Uh, I just think when if if someone says, "Oh, this this person is just not coachable," I'll, I'll I'll stick to my world, like my world of executive coaching. If some if some manager comes to me and says an employee is just not coachable, then I'm thinking, okay, one of two things is happening here: the the manager is not a good coach, or if it really is, you know, the the employee, then they might actually need some psychotherapy as opposed to coaching, right? Because uncoachable just seems like, you know, this is part of my first principles here, right? It's like everybody is always evolving, even if that means they are like regressing sort of temporarily in order to like continue their evolution. I don't think evolution stops. So, you know, I'm very suspicious when someone says that somebody is not coachable. I just think, well, something else is kind of going on here because I just, you know, that my assumption, you know, is that evolution does not stop. So it's my job to figure out what's actually going on here. Is it the manager? Is the person regressing temporarily? Or are they having like a more permanent kind of regression or like arrested development, in which case, you know, they would they would probably need something more like psychotherapy than coaching. But in all of those instances, there is an outcome of continuing evolution available, right? Mm-hmm. So that's as far as the coachability factor. What makes for a good coach? Wow, this is this is an even more difficult question. I mean, the short answer is a good coach helps people get to the next level, however the client defines that to be. This is sort of like, you know, what makes for a great Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. Well, they get, you know, they're they create master students, right? Or like a guru. Who are the good gurus? Are they creating gurus? You know, like are they are they uplifting the planet in some way? Or are they just having sex with all their students and they're, you know, a piece of shit? I hope I can curse on this, by the way. <laughs> oh, totally. We we talk about this all the time. Man, like the th- this is actually a very common problem in I mean in all martial arts, but it happens in jujitsu as well, which is that a lot of martial arts just kind of inevitably become culty after a while. You just, you know, you factor in all of this discipline and routine and rank and authority, and you put people into positions of power who maybe haven't, you know, really experienced that. And you wind up with this kind of situation. It's something that we've tried to shed a lot of light on, actually, is the fact that, you know, a lot of these people who wear the mantle of coach or, you know, the person who's in charge, they can ultimately quite easily become a cult leader if they're not held accountable. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you another answer to the question, which is like, if you are a an instructor, you know, a black belt master, if you have anyone in your charge, if you're a parent, if you're a coach, if you are n- not getting like a big oxytocin hit like that, you know, oxytocin is the love hormone, the dopamine oxytocin one, two combination of, you know, evolution basically if it doesn't really move you to see someone get to their own next level, then you should probably not be a teacher slash coach slash parent slash whatever, right? Because that's what it takes. You know, that's the reward of all the work that you do to raise a child or to train a student. It's it's worth it when you get satisfaction when you feel that love seeing them succeed that's the carrot that keeps me going and the carrot that i would you know i would hope uh, others have as well that's a really good point which is that it, it feels to me like a lot of coaches 
they're basically doing that job for an ulterior purpose, right? It's either because what they yeah, money. Yeah, what they really want to do is pay the bills or what they really want to do is fund their personal competitive career or, you know, maybe what they really want to do is just experience that kind of power or maybe they're selective in the people that they prefer to coach, right? I've I've seen this a lot where the coach will have an idea in their mind of what the perfect student would look like, usually a student that would serve their goals in some way. And they focus excessively on those students and just disregard everyone else, right? Like I don't view someone like that as a true coach. That is more of a, that is more of someone who is using their students as a resource for personal benefit. A coach is someone who is legitimately invested in the success of all of the people on their team. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, this is true of teachers as well. Like teachers will complain about students who need teaching. It's like they... They want, you know, they, they want students who can teach themselves. They, you know, just like, just like managers want employees that can be, that are like self-employed, right? Like mm-hmm. I want to, I want to hire someone who is self-employed. It's like, okay, yes, that makes everyone's job easier. <laughs> and the, yes, I agree. The world would be great if we didn't have to do this thing called help everyone grow, but you know, this is the, this is the dilemma for all of us. If we want to like, you know, live on this planet together and thrive, then we have to attend to human evolution or else, you know, we're going to poison ourselves or battle ourselves through warfare out of existence, you know? So there is like a, there is like a very large way of looking at this dilemma as well, where we are all implicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you a question here, because a challenge that we often have in, I don't know if it applies to every sport, but it certainly does in an individualistic sport like jujitsu. A lot of the time, people are very, very resistant to getting help, very resistant. And I've seen this a lot, right? People might have some, you know, just like incredible devastating injury and they won't even like go see the doctor <laughs> or, you know, maybe they're they're experiencing a real mental health issue, but they won't go and seek help. And similarly, I think when it comes to coaching, a lot of people just are resistant to that, at least in this community. And I think people are starting to understand the importance of having a coach, but there's a lot of mental hangups that come with that. What would you suggest to a person? who is trying to overcome this internal hurdle of being resistant to coaching. Like they know it's important, but they just, they don't even know how to get started. They don't even really believe in the process. Like how do you push someone off the cliff there so that they can start that journey on their own? Yeah. I mean, so there's, I guess, a short answer and a long answer to this. If the short answer doesn't work, I might go to the long answer. But I would point out like Roger Federer is the greatest tennis player of all time. And he's always had a coach. Right. So, mm-hmm. so it's not like they have all these examples of these individualistic heroes who are going out and conquering the world completely alone. Like that, there's not many. Let's look at Nick Kyrgios. He's another tennis player, right? Who I'm sure less people have heard of him. He probably has all of the raw talent that Roger Federer had when he started, but Kyrgios doesn't have a coach. And that's why most people haven't heard of him. I mean, you know, he's he's never been number one in the world. He's, you know, doesn't have any major trophies under his belt. You know, a few ATP tour wins. So I would look at that difference and I would say, okay, so maybe you think you're better than Roger Federer at what you do. Okay, maybe you are. And maybe it's the world or maybe it's you. Now that's like, that's the direct, you know, go after the ego approach that I don't often take. You know, if I don't, if I only have a few seconds with someone, I might say something like that. And, you know, this is not like, oh, a relationship building sort of moment. When it comes to other situations, though, yeah, that, that, that gets more difficult, right? Like, you know, you really need to see if they actually see the dilemma. Like, you meant in your example, you mentioned that, oh, the person, they kind of know that they could use some help, but for some reason they're, you know, just not doing it. So, you know, you might say to that person, well, like, what would, what would you need to see in order to accept like a coach or mentor uh, in your life? Like what, what would it take? So, 
that that line of questioning, you know, just engaging them with with curiosity, but there's no way to push someone, you know, into getting a coach. Yeah. They have to come to it on on their own. Yeah. And I think the social proof example you gave is an awesome one, right? For me, this was kind of a breakthrough moment where I had basically built my whole career around doing things myself. And for me, I mean, I had a lot of personal anecdotal evidence that that worked. I mean, it worked extraordinarily well. All of the approaches that other people advocated for, which mostly involved, you know, you know, leveraging your network and, you know, that that kind of stuff never worked for me. I always got far superior results by just doing things myself. But there comes a level where you start to, and you can actually get pretty far doing that, right? If you're in the right place at the right time. But there comes a level where you start to hit a ceiling and you realize that, okay, if I want to go beyond this, like if, if you feel like you're stalled and you don't know what's needed to get to the next level, the intuitive thing and the, probably the best thing to do is start looking at the people who are at that next level and trying to figure out what they're doing differently from yourself. And the one thing that I've noticed is that all of the people who operate at a world-class level have world-class coaches behind them, right? It's You don't see many people, like you said, who get all the way to the top of the mountain without a coach and they're just like, no, I did this all on my on my own. I mean, I, I guess it's possible, but those people are far more likely to be radical outliers than they would be to be the norm, right? Most people who have massive success get there because they have a community of coaches, advisors, and mentors who help them along the way, right? No one really succeeds on their own. Yeah. they, they At a minimum, they have trusted advisors who are basically providing a coaching role. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's just, you know, nobody, nobody gets to the top of any mountain completely on their own, at least not any mountain that's worth talking about. Mm-hmm. So how would you, I guess, before we go further, is there really a difference between like coach, mentor, advisor? Are these distinct terms or do they all effectively mean the same thing? Well, advisor, it depends on whether or not the advisor is actually part of the organization. Some advisors, you know, you are accountable to and some advisors you are not. So it's really about accountability. Like in the case of, you know, my clients, right? Like they're hiring me and part of what they're hiring me for is that they want to be accountable to me and the methodology that I'm applying to help them get to the next level. So accountability has to be in there. And, you know, just to continue this thread briefly, you know, empathy also has to be in there, right? Like as a coach, as a mentor, as an advisor, if you do not have empathy, then you won't really know what's going on and what is really needed in a given situation. I don't know if I answered, this is the first time where I'm not sure if I answered your question. (laughs) Well, it's something I've wondered because to me, it all seems like, you know, people kind of use those terms somewhat interchangeably, but I'm wondering if there is a like a distinction between a coach versus a mentor versus an advisor. It sounds like the purpose of these roles is all fundamentally to solve the same problem, but the kind of like the, the structure of the relationship might vary a little bit depending. Yeah. The, the, the coaching relationship is intense and accelerates development or evolution. I think in ways that mentors and advisors do not, unless Unless the mentor or advisor is extremely inspiring to that person, to that leader, and they are accountable to them. So if mm-hmm. if there's like 80% or more, I am inspired by this person, and 80% or more, I am accountable to this person, if that equation is met, I think that a mentor or an advisor is basically serving the same function as uh, a coach. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. So I guess you may notice I'm a big fan of the Pareto principle. (laughs) Interestingly, that's a mental model we talk about a lot in the martial arts community, right? It's such a good decision making tool. Well, it's everywhere, right? I mean, you can't not, the only way to not see the Pareto principle is to really bury your head in the sand. But that's a great example of like the difference between a principle and a concept, right? I think sometimes where you tell people about the Pareto principle, 
they get so obsessive about it that they think that everything in life must be subdivided into these 80-20 categories. And that's just not the case. Like it's it's a pattern that upon recognizing proves to be extraordinarily valuable for decision making. But is it a principle to the point where it's like this is a rule that always must be followed? Not so, not so much. So that's one of those funny examples of where I think like you would never call the Pareto principle a first principle because there's so many exceptions to it, right? It's a particular pattern that can emerge and is handy to recognize, but it's not like gravity, <laughs> you know, where it's just, you know, it's always going to be there. It's more of like a, a concept that comes up and it's a helpful pattern to see. Yes, exactly. It's a helpful, it, it, it is a helpful pattern to notice and it it can be applied judiciously. But when it is applied as a rule, then yes, it is. it is far less helpful. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess the last question I have for you, David, while I have you is let's say that this episode really resonates with someone out there and they realize, you know what? I need a coach. How do you begin that process? Like, how do you do that? How do you find a coach? How do you find a mentor? I mean, I'm presumably you don't just post an ad on Craigslist. I'm just wondering, because this is an area where I've struggled is I've thought to myself, okay, I'm sold. I need a coach. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> So I call this the uh, the shaman witch doctor problem, right? Because all you know, depending on who you are, you might see all coaches as shamans, in which case you're you know at risk for getting a witch doctor, or you might be the opposite. You might see everyone as a, a witch doctor, in which case you are at risk for missing out on a potential shaman. You know, so obviously my, you know, in my analogy here, the shamans are like the true coaches that I think are are actually applying authentic developmental, really evolutionary uh, methodologies uh, with their clients. So, you know, my advice is usually twofold. Number one, start with a goal that you have that is super important and super elusive. I mean, we might apply the Pareto principle here, right? Like it is at least 80% important to me. And it is at least 80% elusive. Like I might make some progress on it, but then I find myself, oh, I haven't done that in a while. Like I've, I've slid back to like old behavior patterns. So that's the first step. Identify an important goal that is also elusive. And then I would say the second step is look for someone who's been trained in developmental psychology. I mean, that's like that's really the short answer. There's a pool of developmental psychologists out there. Many of them use something called the immunity to change method. It was created by Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, the, who I, I mentioned Keegan earlier and his longtime partner, Lisa Leahy. If you want some bona fides, you know, it was created at Harvard over the course of, you know, 40 years of research. So it's got very, you know, solid empirical grounding insofar as the methodology actually working. So yeah, I, you know, that that's the short answer that could be a very long answer is look to this pool of coaches that have been trained in methods using adult development theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is just seeing, you know, checking track record and finding out, like you said, you know, what is their education? Have they done it before? Are they trusted by the people who have achieved what you want to achieve. I think that's kind of the the easiest litmus test for this kind of thing. On that that, that goes back to word of mouth though, right? Like I guess another distinction here is like I was assuming we're not talking about like word of mouth. If you have heard about oh, I have someone who's outstanding, then yeah, you're connected to a network who is connected to some of these shamans. I'm not saying that every shaman out there is an adult, you know, developmentally trained coach. I'm just saying that if you do not have like a, a trusted network of advisors who, you know, you can tap into and like, who do you know that's like really good? If you're coming in cold, you are much more likely to get success in your search by looking to that particular population of coaches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. I guess a, a follow-up question. I've heard you name drop a few times here. In terms of like, if someone listens to this and they're looking for something to add to their reading list, any books, websites, articles that you recommend for people who want to kind of start dabbling in the the psychology of adult development? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I would be a poor businessman if I didn't direct people to my own website, which is <laughs> uh, mindfulness.coach. So if you just go to www.mindfulness.coach, mindfulness is one L and two S's dot C-O-A-C-H. That's not a bad place to start. Uh, you know, you'll get some, there's, there's some very readily digestible material on there for you. If you want a deeper dive, like if you really want to dork out on the adult development stuff, just go buy uh, Robert Keegan's book, In Over Our Heads. It's all about this subject-object theory that I have been, you know, discussing uh, our entire chat here. So yeah, other sources. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, I mentioned immunity to change coaches. So there's a network of immunity to change coaches. And if you want to like tap into that particular network, just go to mindsatwork.com. And just like it sounds, minds at work, and uh, you'll be able to like access, you know, a whole slew of coaches who have been trained using these methods. Awesome. Awesome. So mindfulness.coach is where to go is your starting point. I got a question. Some of this Robert Keegan stuff, I've heard a few people recommend it. Is it going to be the kind of thing that's going to be like over my head as someone who doesn't have a psychological background, or is it kind of written in such a way that a layman could figure it out? That's a very good question. <laughs> I will tell you that if you do not have a psychological background, then you may be frustrated with that particular book. If you do not have a psychological background, but you are, let's say, you know, psychologically minded or you're an empathetic person, you know, you're the kind of person that people say, oh, I can't believe I just told you that, then you would probably enjoy that book. But it is, you know, it, it is some heady reading. It does get into some pretty deep concepts that require some mental gymnastics. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, I guess closing thoughts, David, any last thoughts here before we put a bow on this episode? Oh my God. What? So much pressure, Steve. <laughs> hey, you're, you're the coach, man. I'm just holding up the mirror. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would say, you know, if you, like, if you have anyone in your charge, you know, and and that's like a term from a bygone era, right? And and but we all do, right? I would say approach them with support and challenge. You need to have an appropriate blend. And some people are way too much challenge, and some people are way too much support. And this is the easiest way to, I would say, help other people while also helping yourself, while also helping us as a species. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, David. Thank you so much. And of course, thank you to everyone out there who is listening and also who supports us on Patreon. That's the single best way to keep the lights on. If you want to join the crew of cool people, patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. That's the way to get access to the premium tiers. The podcast here is just the beginning. We have tons of courseware and material as well as coaching, <laughs> interestingly, coaching tips and tactics and involvement with myself and the rest of the community. It's also the way to get onto our awesome discord community where you can chat with us and brainstorm directly. Again, patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. Really do appreciate everyone who helps us there. And of course, if you want to learn more about the concepts we talk about on the show, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's also a great place to contact us and reach out with your questions. David, thank you so much. This was an awesome chat. I really think it's going to be helpful to people. And I think it's something that I'd like to explore in a lot more depth going forward, because I think the process of coaching and the process of teaching at least in this area of the world, in jiu-jitsu, they're quite underrepresented and underconsidered. So again, thank you for coming on here and sharing your thoughts. I really do appreciate it. Steve, the, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. All right. And to all the listeners, thanks again for your time as well. Talk to you next time. Bye.